first got turned on to philosophy. Now, Steve Martin once said, I learned just enough philosophy in college to mess me up for the rest of my life. So there's something to that as well. And the philosophies of, of men and, and the, the messes that uh, sometimes men and women across the ages have gotten into trying to overthink things or, or, or intellectualize things, that's not, that's not the thing that, that really caught my attention. I remember a book called, I think it was called Six Great Truths by uh, Mortimer Adler. And it was a book of philosophy. And of course, we, we read in this philosophy class that I had my senior year, we read a book about the great philosophers of the Western world. And we had to write a God paper. And literally, this is in public high school. My, the truth paper was you had to, using the philosophers and using reason, you had to make the case for absolute truth or relative truth. High school kids. And then the second one, the God paper, was you had to prove or disprove the existence of God. <laughs> so that was a lot of fun. It came back to me this afternoon. I mean, just kind of came flooding in that year and those thoughts. And, and, and I, liked, I always liked the title of Adler's book, Six Great Truths, because he existential, philosophical, theological truths. And I, I literally, I mean, I was all done. I was about ready to put this away and, and go home and then come back this evening. And, and I realized, wait, there are, there are really four parts to this. So I'm going to go ahead and give them to you right now so you know where we're going through the rest of chapter 8. And those four great truths are light, truth, the devil, and God. And that's what Jesus is going to speak and teach and deal with here. Light, truth, the devil, and God. And by the way, what we discover in this chapter is better than any paper I ever wrote in high school, anything I ever learned in a philosophy class. What Jesus speaks here is, well, I believe it will touch your heart as it has mine with profound solid truth. So again, light, truth, the devil, and God. And part one, we start with light. Now, we got to back up a little bit before we begin. And we'll pick it up in verse 12. That's where we'll start because we did verses 2 through 11 on Sunday. We, we started final special Sabbath, the great day they would call that. And so this festival of Sukkot, every fall, the final feast really of the year. It's the last one. This would be the equivalent in terms of joy and festivity and, and gatherings and fellowship as Christmas is oftentimes for us. End of the year, you know, we kind of finish out with that and then we're on into the new year after that. Well, Sukkot is over. Sukkot is just finished as we pick up in chapter 8. Time to pack it in, load it up, move it out. Get on back to life. The people had all been in Jerusalem now for a week, maybe 10 days. They may have come early. Some would stay late, as tends to happen in our holiday festivities. But it's time for goodbyes now. And as chapter 8 opens up, on the morning of chapter 8, maybe it's time for one last visit to the temple before heading back to regions north or, or east or west or south. And there on the mount... Jews who would be coming into the temple for that one last visit, maybe even one last peace offering or, or sacrifice, but they'd come into the temple court and what they would see going on, well, it was interesting because the priests in training could be seen on ladders climbing up those tall menorahs. There were four of them that were placed out every year at Sukkot, the brightest element of Sukkot, these Four massive golden menorahs that were set in each one of the corners of the women's court, of the large courtyard there, 
on the Temple Mount. Each one of these massive menorahs, and when I say massive, I mean massive, they were 75 plus feet tall from base to flame. 75 feet. I mean, try to wrap your brain around that. The wicks on these things were the robes, the used robes of priests. So reuse, recycle, you know. Uh, they, they took the old robes and they used them for wicks just to make these things burn. These things burn so bright, they lit up all of Jerusalem. In fact, Mishnah says that the light could be seen for 100 miles. And just bright there on the Temple Mount, on Mount Moriah, during that great celebration of Sukkot. It, it broke loose in the evenings when they lit the menorah as the sun was going down. The priestly music, the Levitical music, would, they would rock the place. It was said that it was celebratory and the priests themselves would be dancing around within the courtyard and there was just massive joy as the people celebrated Sukkot together. But now the menorahs are doused and they're being taken down and the sukkahs are all being disassembled and taken down in people's yards and the courtyards and around the, the hillsides of Jerusalem. And I really wonder if at this point, and try to get into that position, think about how much effort and energy we put into the Christmas holidays. You know, I often call it the Christmas noose, you know, as we're getting closer and closer to the day. I mean, it's in Washington. And some literally sink into a depression. I mean, there's the post-holiday blues because we put so much effort and so much energy into something, and now it's over. Well, I wonder if it was like that for some. Remember, this is the end of the calendar year. This is at the end of Tishri. And so after this, you would be going into the winter months in Israel, which, by the way, are remarkably similar. The, the weather in Israel, the warmer in some places and colder in others, the weather in Israel is remarkably similar to the Northwest. We discovered that in, in traveling there. Not the summers. Of course, maybe, I don't know, summer. Such joy, such celebration, then all of a sudden, such darkness. And yet, it was the prophet Isaiah who once said in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1, there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated her, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on he shall make it glorious by way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. And that day, as the menorahs came down in the courtyard of the temple, the Galilean rabbi Yeshua spoke up. And he said in verse 12, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. And it is the second. He says, I am the light of the world. And you need to understand from a Hebraic perspective, it is a deeply messianic statement. I am the light of the world. Jesus owns the Hebrew scriptures. He just does. Psalm 27, verse 1, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? The Lord is my life. Jesus says, I am the light. Isaiah 49, verse 6, He says it's too small a thing. God speaking to Jesus, Father to Son, it's too small a thing that you should be my servant, 
to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel, I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach out to the end of the earth. I used to think that was talking about Israel. No, that's talking about Israel's Messiah. Because Messiah not only came to the Jew first, but also to the Greek. And so Messiah's job was to come to Israel to restore the preserved ones of Israel, to raise up the tribes of Jacob, but also because that's not enough as far as grace is concerned. God says, I got to do more. I'll make you a light of the nations. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. It's me. Now, what's really cool about this, at this particular festival of Sukkot, on this day, Jesus' self-declaration that I am the light comes one day after his invitation to living water. I am the light, he says today, but yesterday he said, hey, if anyone's thirsty, let him keep coming to me and keep drinking. And rivers of living water will flow from within. And what we see in Jesus doing this one day after the other is light and water are paired. And it's intentional because the water, speaking of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, abundance of your house, and you give them to drink of the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life, there's your water, in your light we see light, and there's the light. So this was messianic prophecy. And Jesus, as it were, does a part one on the eighth day of the feast and a part two on the day right after the feast is over. Part one and part two, come to me for living water. By the way, I'm the light of the world, water and light, Psalm 36, verse 9. And Jesus goes further. He doesn't just say, I'm the light of the world, but he claims to shine the very light of life. Notice that. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. That, that again, it's just huge. We need sunlight to live. We could not exist without it. Oh, sure, we can hide out in caves for a time or we can submerge ourselves, but the reality is our oxygen and food sources depend on the sun for photosynthesis among the plants. And if we didn't have the plants, then even the carnivorous animals would have nothing to eat because they eat the plant eaters and plant buy in droves from Costco at this time of year. Vitamin D is produced by sunlight. We need the sun Temperature is balanced and maintained in the world by the sun, even as the earth spins on its axis. Vision requires the sun. Otherwise, we're walking around in the dark. The water cycle on planet earth is subject to the sun. Light even shapes our moods and it affects our emotions. You all know this. We need the sun. We need the light to live. Without the light, we would die. And Jesus says, that's it. I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light like that, unless you happen to be the light, unless you happen to be God himself. Isaiah chapter 60, verse 1, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Behold, darkness will cover the earth and deep darkness the peoples, but the Lord will rise upon you, and his glory will appear upon you, and one commentator said, light is Yahweh in action. That is light. He is light. In fact, the Bible tells us in 1 John, God is light 
and in him there is no darkness at all. He is the very source of light. When God at the very beginning said, let there be light, he was just speaking from himself. He was just extending what is sourced in him, what is generated by him because of who he is. And so Jesus here, he makes a bold and daring statement of a woman who was ensnared by her own adultery. It had just taken place. So keep that in the back of your mind. Even as this, as this teaching continues in chapter 8, this is all moment by moment. She has just been set free. And, and while her accusers, who were in the courtyard moments before, were summarily dismissed by their own realization that not one of them were worthy to cast a stone, there were yet remaining Pharisees in the court. There's still others standing around who weren't part of, the, part of the posse that caught her in the act and brought her before Jesus. There are still those Jewish leaders who are standing around and they've got their arms crossed and their shirts stuffed <laughs> and they're looking at Jesus and they're not buying it and they're mixed in the crowds that are listening and hanging on every word. But the Pharisees who were still there, they rebuffed Jesus when he claimed to be the light of the world. Verse 13, so the Pharisees said to him, you're testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not true. You can't just say anything you want. We don't believe you. There's only one giving witness right now. And your testimony is not true. John chapter 1 verse 4 tells us, why they react this way, why they respond this way. Because in him, in Jesus, in the word was life. And the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. People, the light of Christ is too bright. They just, I don't want to see all this because when the light shines, I see who I am. When the light shines, my sin becomes apparent. I don't want my sin to become apparent. And some would push back against the light. You know what's amazing about the light of the world is that for those who receive it, for those who allow his light to shine on them so that those sinful places can be, you are the light of the world. Wait, no, Jesus, no, that's you. Yeah, yeah, I am the light of the world, Jesus would say, but he also looked around to his disciples on that hillside in the Galilee and said, you are the light of the world. He went on and described a city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So I hear him say that, and I hear the prophecies of the light of the world, and I hear Jesus say, I am the light of the world, but then he says, you are, and, and how do we figure all this out? How does this work? Well, look at it this way. Jesus is the greater light and we are the lesser light. What do you mean? Genesis 1.16, God made two lights, a greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. Jesus, as it were, is like the sun. The sun is a created thing, right? So Jesus is far greater, but the light of the sun, S-O-N. He's the great light. We're the lesser lights. But we are also the light of the world. You are the light of the world, Jesus says. How? By reflecting the light that is Jesus. By simply speaking the truth of Jesus. By, by being mirrors off of which his light shines into the world. He's the great light. 
First Thessalonians chapter five, verse four, Paul says, you brethren are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of day. We're not of night nor of darkness. First John 1, 7, if we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. We walk in the light of Jesus. And as we do so, that light shines off of us, is reflected from us, not generated by us, but reflected to the world, the light of Jesus Christ. But the Pharisees only reflected the law. And that's why they were so down on Jesus. Because the law was down on them. Because as we've talked about over and over, the law, perfect as it is, is impossible to keep and can only condemn as I look at it and realize how flawed I really am. How far from the truth I really am. One witness according to the law was not enough. And they're calling Jesus on this. You testify about yourself, you testify about myself. My testimony is true. And I know where I came from and where I am going. But you, didn't know where, you do not know where I come from or where I am. Stand as witnesses that Jesus is who he says he is. Do you get what I'm saying there? Now, this is not something that they would understand in the moment. It, 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 would, it would blow them away. This is like philosophy that, that messes them up. They, they're, they're not getting it. Jesus is saying, I know where I come from and where I'm going. And that will testify. See, he knows what they don't know. He knows he came from heaven. He knows he's God. He didn't have to prove that to anybody because that's who he is. He knows where he came from. He knows where he's going. And he knows that ultimately everyone will know that. Ultimately, that's the truth that you cannot deny. You can try to, you know, sidestep it, get around it. You can't. It's just true. Jesus says, I know where I came from. I, I know where I'm going. He says in verse 15, you judge according to the flesh. That's your problem. You're looking at this from a flesh perspective. You're missing the whole point. He says, I am not judging anyone. By the way, by the way, I didn't say this on Sunday. I wish I had. <laughs> I'll say it right now. You know how we talked about a little bit at the beginning of chapter 8 that there are questions about that story, those first 11 verses, questions about its legitimacy. Uh, it's missing in some of the in some of the earlier manuscripts. And we talked about how there are also, this doesn't make any sense at all because the scrolls were continuous text. So verse 12 should have followed verse 53. Of course, there were no verses, but the next thing should have just followed right on in the ancient text. But so many of these manuscripts have this big blank space as if something's missing. But here's something else to understand. Even in the way John lays out his gospel, and I think it's a further proof, what I would call incidental evidence that verses 53 through verse 11 of chapter 8 are legitimate. And it's very simply this. The pattern in John's gospel is always incident followed by teaching. There's an incident, and then Jesus teaches. And there's an incident, and Jesus teaches. Have you noticed that even on our Sundays and Wednesdays? That Sunday morning we're dealing with the incidents. And then Wednesday night, we come back in here and we deal with the teaching based on the incident. He feeds the 5,000 at the beginning of John chapter 6. What's the rest of John chapter 6? Teaching based on the feeding of the 5,000. 
And if you follow it through, John does this with every single one of the major teaching sections of Jesus. They always follow an incident. Well, the incident of chapter 8 is the woman caught in adultery. And I think if you're just following the very simple pattern of John, if there was no incident, if that story is not actually there, and you just go right on into the teaching of chapter 8, you miss the incident. So it's incidental evidence. See what I'm saying? It's just one more thing to think about. It's interesting because in the pattern of John, there should be an incident, a story, a narrative that takes place. It's just happened. That had just taken place moments before with the woman. Verse 16 Jesus says, but, but even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone in it, but I am the Father who sent me. Even in your law, it's been written that the testimony of two men is true. I am he who testifies about myself, and the Father who sent me testifies about me. There are your two witnesses right there. You need two witnesses, Father and Son. I'm not just testifying about myself. There is another, Jesus says. There's a key witness. The key witness is the Father. The Father. In fact, we could go a step further and say, actually, according to Torah law, there needs to be two or three witnesses, and we know there's the three witnesses of the Trinity, so there you go. There are three witnesses, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, as required by Torah law. Verse 19, they say to him, Where is your father? Now, hold it right there for a second because they're setting him up. When I taught this, last time we went through John, I think it was around 2015, and when we went through it before, um, I looked at chapter 8, and it's a very contentious chapter. You'll see this more and more. It builds in contention as we go on. The argument between Jesus and the Pharisees gets pretty, pretty awesome. But when I taught it before, I looked at it more from the perspective of Jesus really going after the Pharisees. This time around, as I've revisited this, no, no, no. The Pharisees are going after Jesus, and they are lambasting him, and they are negative. They will, and it is a not so subtle reference to questions about the legitimacy of his birth. They're bringing it up. They will bring it to literal explanation. They'll they'll say it straight up in just a few minutes. Birth, come on. We know what really happened, and so they're beginning to reference this. And the reason I know this is, again, because of what they will say in just a moment. Where is your father? Jesus answered, and he is unfazed. You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. Subtle hints here. He begins with subtlety. He ends with blatant truth. But the subtle hint here is, you don't know my father. And the subtle hint is, you don't know God. But some are still thinking physical, as he just said. You're thinking in the flesh. I'm I'm not talking about the flesh. You're judging in the flesh. I'm not judging at all here. And, and, And they're saying, where's your father? He's like, you don't know my father. If you knew me, you'd know my father. Which again is, if you knew me, you'd know who God is. You'd know God if you know me. What's interesting here in verse 20 is John keeps coming back to the intentionality of God in the hour of Jesus. We've talked about this several times already, how how Jesus is untouchable. No one seized him because his hour had not yet come. What is it? And we don't know, John doesn't describe what it means other than that they couldn't do it. They couldn't seize him. 
Maybe there was something spiritual going on, something emotional in them where they wanted to step forward and they stepped back because they just they couldn't bring themselves to seize him. But the, the, real, the reality, the reason why is because his hour had not yet come. I want to point this out to you again. We, we talk about this and think this through, but it's so vital to our, to our walk in the Spirit. Just as nothing could touch Jesus until his hour had come, nothing can touch you. <laughs> it's that simple. I remember, and Jim, if, if I may, um, Jim went through cancer. It's, it's been years now, several years ago. And I remember we were praying one time. You were with the shepherds, and we, and we were praying about this. And it just hit me so strong to say, you know, Jim, it's not your numbers. You know how with cancer, you've got numbers that they're watching. Well, my numbers are down. Well, my numbers are up. No, no, the only numbers that matter are the numbers of our days that God knows. And we, and we talked about it. It was really moving to me, because, and I've never forgotten that night, because as we were praying, what the Lord spoke to me wasn't just to say, hey, Jim, your numbers, it doesn't matter if your numbers are up until your number's up, right? Well, I walked away from that meeting going, that makes me so confident in life. My number is not up until my number's up. I am invincible until that moment where God says, you're done with this, this planet. You're not going to go home. You're untouchable. And even the enemy can't touch you. Just as the enemies of Jesus couldn't touch him, Psalm 39, verse 4, just another passage on this, Lord, make me know my end and what is the extent of my days. Let me know how transient I am. Behold, you have made my days as hand breaths. I mean, if you can count with your hand, that's what we're talking about. And my lifetime as nothing in your sight. Surely every man at his best is a mere breath. Surely every man walks about as a phantom. Surely they make an uproar for nothing. He amasses riches and does not know who will gather them. And now, Lord, for what do I wait, David says. And then he says the key. Oh, wait a minute. My hope is in you. Yeah, my life is transient, but I don't know when it's over. And even in that transience, my hope is in the Lord. And when your hope is in the Lord, you don't fear anything else. When you fear the Lord, you're not going to fear other things. So even if the doctor calls and says, your numbers are up, you just tell him next time that happens, yeah, well, my number isn't up until God says so, so thanks for calling. Click. <laughs> so it's not Jesus' time. And verse 21, continuing on, then he said again to them, I go away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. And he's speaking now to the unbelievers. So the Jews were saying, verse 22, surely he will not kill himself, will he, since he says where I'm going, you cannot come. And you might not catch this, but it is another slam on Jesus. If, if we were to phrase it another way, they would be saying, he's not suicidal, is he? And the thing is, where I'm going, you cannot come. What, is he going to kill himself? What, is he suicidal? They're saying, this guy's nuts. This, guy, this guy's messed up. By the way, that, that mentality that the darkest place in hell is reserved for those who committed suicide spilled over into Catholicism. And it's a question that I am asked from time to time. Is suicide an unforgivable sin? I'm normally asked by someone who's lost someone dear. 
And I, I will give you an answer to that. Very simply, there's only one unforgivable eternal sin. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. That's Mark chapter 3, verse 29. People say, yeah, yeah, but, but if you commit suicide, you can't apologize. You can't ask for forgiveness. You're thinking in the flesh. Got to think in the Spirit. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 says, By grace you have been saved through faith, and that, that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. I'm saved by grace. Well, isn't suicide a sin? I would say it is. Because it's murder. But so are so many other things. Can, but in this case, they're trying to undermine Jesus. They're trying to insert a, a bit of, he's kind of crazy because now he's talking suicidally. And that's not the case at all. He was saying to them, verse 23, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I mean, it's like a Dr. Seuss rhyme. Let me be clear. Let me be as basic as possible. You're from down here, and that's how you're thinking. That's why you're not getting this. Therefore, I said to you, verse 24, you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. And note that the word he is not in the verse. Unless you believe the bad news of the good news. See, the gospel is good news for anyone who receives it, but it is bad news for anyone who rejects it. Because the gospel message is salvation in Jesus Christ alone. And without receiving the gospel, there is no hope of the first resurrection. No hope of, of, of the rapture of the church. You're grounded. You will not fly. You will not go when Jesus catches us up, when he says, come up here, when we meet him in the air to be with the Lord. The harsh reality of the gospel is that unless you believe that Jesus is who he says he is, you will not be saved. And so Jesus isn't being mean when he says, you will die in your sin back in verse 21. Or therefore I said that you'll die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am, you will die. How many times does he have to say it? Jesus said to them, he who sent me is true. That is, he truly sent me. And the things which I heard from him, these things... I speak to the world. So Jesus is saying, I got a lot of things I want to say. I'm not going to say them right now. It's like later on, he'll say to the apostles, I have many more things to say to you, but you can't take them right now. So I'll save those for later. But in this moment, he says, I got a lot I want to say, but I am constraining myself to only speak that which is directly from the Father, which is amazing, showing us how absolutely connected to God he is. How, how one father and son are when he says, I only speak the things the father says. I'm not even going to speak things that I want to say. I'm just going to say what he's saying. They did not realize he'd been speaking to them about the father. See, they're still thinking about his earthly father. They're still trying to figure out who he is by his dad on earth. And they know it can't be Joseph because they weren't married and there's infidelity and there's something else that went on there and he's a bastard child. And so, so his father, little F, can't be of any import. Who's his real father? So they're not getting yet that it's God, the Father, capital F. Verse 28, so, so Jesus says, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. He says it again. And I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father 
taught me, and he who sent me is with me, and he has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And as he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. Think about what had he said in just the last two days alone when they're questioning him. And he says, what have I been saying to you? Haven't you heard me? What did he say yesterday in the courtyard? What did he just say today in the courtyard? I am the light of the world and you're out. You're not getting it? And again, he's constraining himself, only speaking the words of the Father because he's so in sync with the Father. And I love the fact that in verse 30, as he spoke these things, many did come to believe in him. So there are Jews there in the courtyard that day at the end of Sukkot who are going, listen to what he's saying. Nobody teaches like him. I think he's the one. He's got to be the one. You know what's really cool about faith? Faith was wide open even before the resurrection. Even before the Holy Spirit was given, faith was available. That's encouraging to me because faith is available in this world to those who do not yet have the Holy Spirit, to those who don't yet believe in the resurrection. Faith's available. All you got to do is ask. All you got to do is look to God. All you got to do is make that one eternal, I wouldn't say error because it's not an error. I'm thinking fatal error. The one fatal error. Say, Lord, if you're true, tell me. Boom, you're done. Jesus, are you who I'm reading about? Is this you? Can you help me? Because I, I, I'm struggling to believe that. Can you help me believe that? Boom, faith is available. And many in the courtyard were believing in him right then. The words of Jesus, and here's what's so beautiful, beautiful about this. When Jesus taught, it was words uncluttered by either power or religion. So different than the Pharisees. So different than the Sadducees. Those who are in power and the leaders of the people and were protective of their authority. And were so religious in their approach to everything. Jesus was not cluttered by either power or religion. His words were clear enough that the common crowd were believing. When you lift up again the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. And I, I shared this earlier with some friends this morning that he says I am twice here already. He's already exposed the ego a me, unless you believe that I am. When you lift me up, you'll know that I am. But he says it mid-sentence. So he's kind of teaching right along, and it's almost as if, as they're listening to it, they have to go, wait, wait, what did he say? I am? What? What was that? I don't know. He's still teaching. Shut up. Okay. All right. But I thought he said, okay. So, so you could see how they might miss that and not, not quite grasp the gravity that you and I feel when we read, I am. But when he says, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. The word lift up, listen, in, in the Greek, it's, it's huposete, alt or to, to lift up with dignity. It's what you would use to, for someone coming through who was a, a, a dignified person. You'd honor them. You'd live Christian teachings, and it's misunderstood. And people will say, yeah, all we have to know, do to know Jesus is lift him up. You know, as, as we lift him up, we'll know him. As we worship him, we'll know him. Listen, worship is great, but the lifting up of Jesus in the Gospel of John always speaks of the cross. It's always the cross. So it's exaltation through sacrifice. 
when you lift me up, and you can imagine the cross coming up before the people and dropping into the ground. And there he is above the people lifted up. And in that moment he says, when you lift me up, then you will know that I am. Remember what happened? It was a non-Jewish centurion who said, surely this is the Son of God. And there were those in that moment who recognized. And, and part of what I think, this is just me, but I think Jesus is getting at here. When you lift up the Son of Man, you'll know that I am and I do nothing on my own initiative. Who would choose that? Who would choose the cross? Jesus makes it clear if he was working on his own initiative, he wouldn't choose that, but it's what the Father wants, so it's what he'll do. Not my will, but yours be done. And so in the lifting up of Jesus, that's when we know I am. The cross at Golgotha. John chapter 3, verse 14, he said it to Nicodemus. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And so that was a conundrum for Nicodemus even. Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. But he's using that word to honor. But the serpent wasn't honored. The serpent was ugly. The serpent was a picture of sin. Jesus is going to be lifted up like a picture of sin? And Nicodemus had to process that through. Or John chapter teaches on. He's hinting. We're still talking light here. We're still in part one, by the way. If you wanted to go ahead, don't do that yet. We're still in part one, light. The great truth of light. And he's already said twice here, I am, I am. And he is building to the most stunning I am since Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, since Moses at the burning bush, we'll get there in just a minute. But now we come to part two, the truth. Light and now truth, verse 31. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word, you are truly disciples of mine and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. And you know what he doesn't say there? He doesn't say you will know your truth. He says you'll know the truth. It's only one. He's talking in absolutes, one absolute, and it's not what we make of it. And that is so sad, and it's so devious of the enemy. Six great truths. He pointed out that if a couple men get on a boat and set out on a river, and they're told that there is a sandbar on the river two miles down river, but they don't believe it. So they get in the boat and they head down the river believing the sandbar is at least five or six miles down the river. We don't believe that it's two miles down the river. Guess what happens? Two miles down the river, they run aground on the sandbar. Doesn't matter what they believe. The truth is the truth. It's absolute. And Jesus says, you will know the truth. And it's so ironic to me how the world has deceptively commandeered verse 32 you shall know the truth, or the last part of it, and the truth shall set you free. Johns Hopkins, University of Portland, Caltech, among multiple colleges and universities that take the truth shall set you free, and they emblazon it above the doors of their entryways. The truth will make you free. Sometimes it's in Latin. It's more impressive that way. Other times it just says the truth will make you free. It's even carved, or it was, in the original headquarters of the CIA. The truth will make you free. And that's what we're all about, finding out the truth. Listen to me, verse 32 has nothing to do with higher education or criminal investigation. 
Verse 32 has been lifted out of context in our world to say that the truth, the generic truth, any truth, your truth, my truth, you just got to find your truth and that will set you free. No, there's one truth, only one, is a pretext. You know what a pretext is? It's a guise or a ruse or a con. And you pull it out of what its intended meaning is and, and it, it, it doesn't mean anything. So in the colleges and universities, the truth shall set you free. Ask the truth shall make you free. And all the colleges are saying, our truth, our ability to give you knowledge will bring freedom to your life. And there are a lot of people who go to college and come out the other side bound up. The truths so-called, the education so-called. Listen, I don't want to be misunderstood here. I am very pro-education. I want my kids to go to college. I, I want my kids to learn. Uh, and, and I went to college, and I learned, and I learned so many valuable lessons. So I'm, I'm not opposed to college and university and all of that. I think you got to go with eyes wide open, though, because the truth is not what the college teaches you. The truth is Jesus Christ. And if you go knowing that, there are things you can learn. And you can be blessed in that education. But, but, but you ask the question, well, what is truth? If the truth will set you free. So here we have something Jesus says that will set you free. We got to comprehend what does that mean? Pontius Pilate's going to ask Jesus the question, what is truth? What is truth? Well, it's already been answered by Jesus. And listen to this, note this. You might want to jot this down in, in your Bible, at least some kind of note to help you understand this or remember this. In verse 32, I'm going to get technical with you just for a second to understand the truth. In verse 32, he says, you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. So he says the truth twice in verse 32. The first time he says it, it's ten aletheon in the Greek. Ten aletheon. You don't have to write that down. Just remember this. The first time he says it, it's in the accusative form of the Greek. Now, I, I said I'm going to get technical. The accusative form, what does that mean? It's the common form used for nouns in the Greek. So in using the truth, the noun, the truth, and you will know the truth. It's a common noun, no big deal, right? The next time he says, and the truth will set you free, it's not ten aletheon, which is the accusative form, it's he aletheia, which is now the nominative form, nominative. So, so what? So it's just two forms, right? Listen, the nominative form, when it's placed before the verb, as it is here, and the truth will set you free. Will set you free is the verb. When the noun form, when the nominative form is used and it's used before the verb, it's a pronoun. It's not just a noun. It's a pronoun. Suddenly in speaking this, in the way Jesus speaks it, and the way John writes what Jesus says, you will know the truth. You're going to know what's true, what the, the absolute truth is. And the truth, pronoun, 31 again, if you continue in my word, then you're disciples of mine, and you'll know the truth. Why do we know the truth? Because of his word, because he is the truth. And the only way you're going to know the truth is by continuing in his word, because Jesus himself 
is the truth. Skip down to verse 36. He says, if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. You will know the truth, he says, and the truth will make you free. And in verse 36, if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. Why? Because the Son is the truth. The pronoun of the truth is Jesus himself. Jesus is the person of truth who sets us free. Ask the woman just freed of her adultery moments ago. What is her truth? Well, her truth, praise the Lord, was the truth who spoke to her, neither do I condemn you, go your way and sin no more. Romans chapter 8, verse 1, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because he's the truth. He's the absolute. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. The truth shall set you free. Galatians 5.1, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. The truth will set you free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. So Jesus now speaks light and he speaks truth. But I remind you, this is a mixed crowd. Schisms, like we talked about last Wednesday night, there are schisms in the crowd. Schisms are showing, cracks are showing. They're late and reject. Verse 33 they answered him saying, we are Abraham's descendants and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Are you kidding me? We've never been slaves. They just celebrated Sukkot, which was the celebration of their wanderings in the wilderness following their deliverance from slavery. We've never been slaves of anyone. Really? Was their history bereft of the Assyrian annihilation of northern Israel 700 years before? Or the brutal Babylonian captivity, which lasted 70 years, 500 years earlier? Had they forgotten about this? What about the Macedonian megalomaniac, a guy by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes, who came down with his Greek army and conquered Jerusalem and stayed in Jerusalem for a short time and bloodied the Holy of Holies in the temple with pig's blood. We've never been enslaved to anyone. We've always been free. Why, why are you saying we'll be set free? What about your current Roman occupation and oppression? That as you're speaking this, you are under oppression. You know, listen. Slaves of sin often have no idea that they are slaves. So just as the Pharisees and the non-believing folk in the crowd say, we have never yet been enslaved to anyone, people who are enslaved to sin often really do believe they're free to do whatever they want. I don't go to church because I want to be free to live my life, free to do my thing, free. And they're enslaved. They just haven't realized it yet. They're held captive by the enemy to do his will. And it's the enslavement of sin that is Jesus' concern. Verse 34, he answered them, truly, truly I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. That is, you're there for a time and then the master, if he gets tired of you, wants someone else, kicks you out, you're gone. You don't get the benefits of inheritance. You don't get the benefits of family. You just work here for a season until you're set free and then you're out. 
The Son, he says, does remain forever. So if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. Again, the truth will set you free. The Son makes you free. He is the truth that sets free. Jesus is saying a great truth here, that God's not looking for house slaves. Heaven is not Downton Abbey. And our coming into the family of God, listen, you know this, God is looking for heirs. He desires sons to remain in his house forever. Yes, ladies, I know I didn't say daughters because he, he wants sons and sons. I'll say it again. If I have to be the bride, you have to be sons. But that's the, that's the point here. A son remains in the house forever. Romans chapter 8, verse 14. Let me just read this to you quickly. All who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. All of us. You've not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. And I can't wait. Next week. And I'm not saying this. I know there are a lot of you who want to go to Israel and you're not able to go this time and I'm praying you'll be able to go next time. I'm not saying this to rub it in, but one of my favorite things is sitting in the courtyard of the great synagogue in Jerusalem, having a falafel and watching the little kids run along saying, Abba, Abba. And that's us. We say, Abba, Father. Because we've been adopted in as his sons the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also. Heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. And it is the son of the house, Jesus says, that makes you free forever, makes you a free son when before you were a slave to sin. Jesus says, you don't need to be a slave any longer. Verse 37 I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak the things which I have seen with, I have heard from your father. And he's starting to introduce something here that is subtle but pretty stunning. You speak the things you've heard with your father. Hold that thought. And they answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. What deeds might those be? I can sum it all up for you in one word, faith. Faith. If you are a child of Abraham, then walk by faith. Then trust what you've been hearing, what you've been seeing, what the Hebrew scriptures say about me. Trust all of this. Have faith. If you're really Abraham's children, you're going to believe in me, which by the way, Gentiles, it makes us all children of Abraham. The fact that you are here tonight makes you a child of Abraham. That's your heritage. By faith, we have that great connection. But as it is, verse 40, you are seeking to kill me. A man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God, this Abraham did not do. You are doing the deeds of your father. And then they nail him. They said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one Father, God. They're just waiting to spring that charge of illegitimacy on Jesus. And you know that charge is still written down in Talmud? In the Babylonian Talmud, 
today, it still characterizes Jesus as an illegitimate child of adultery and a sorcerer who led people astray by his magic. That's what Talmud says. That's how far away from understanding at least some rabbis have gotten from who Jesus is himself. And you hear them say, we weren't born of fornication, implication like you. I love Jesus because here's the reality. While they're getting all hot and bothered and angry and contentious, doesn't even phase him. Jesus just continues on. How, how, do you, how do you answer such a charge? I mean, put yourself in Jesus' sandals just for a moment, and you've just been called illegitimate. How do you answer that? What, what do you say about, uh-uh, <laughs> no, no, I know what the lies are out there, no. I mean, I, wouldn't you go immediately into self-defense? No, I'm not. Jesus doesn't even grace it with a response. You don't have to when you are the truth. Verse 42, Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God. How much clearer can it be? Okay, I've come from God. I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. John will later pick up on this in 1 John, which I'm excited for you because Jake, Jesus. Jesus is not the illegitimate child. Jesus is begotten in the most legitimate way any child has ever been begotten, of God, of the Holy Spirit. And actually, his begottenness, and I don't want to get, I got to say this, his begottenness is not even his birth in Bethlehem. His begottenness is his resurrection. And you can read about that in Acts chapter 13. But verse 44, just going on. You, Jesus says, are of your father the devil. Now he's picking up back on verse 38. You don't want to hear this from Jesus. Where he said in verse 38, you do the things which you heard from your father. And now he explains what he meant. You are of your father the devil and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak truth, you do not believe me? Which one of you convicts me of sin? <laughs> this is a great, go ahead. What have I, how have I sinned? Tell me. What, what do you convict me of? He goes on and says, if I speak truth, why do you not believe me? And then he says, he was of God. Here's the words of God. For this reason, you do not hear because you are not of God. And the Jews answered and said to him, do we not rightly say that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Well, okay, now at this point, they're just flailing. Now they're just throwing out insults. Now it's just like, oh, well, yeah, well, 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 you're stupid like that. Like the Pharisees are all upset. Argument's over. I mean, honestly, this is the point in the chapter where they've lost any argument. They've lost any footing because now they're just insulting. And they're not dealing reasonably. But again, Jesus, he just ignores the insults. And, and he speaks here, not an insult, not a challenge, not even... He's not even being harsh. This is a deeply spiritual rebuke because what happens in verses 44 through 47, Jesus looks right through them and he sees who he's really talking to. And it's the devil. He sees the issue. 
You guys are not believing, you're not hearing, you're not trusting because you're listening to the wrong father. Your father, the devil. Part three. Part three, the devil. Verse 44 again, listen to it. This is, verse 44 is, is an entire case study. It's an entire explanation of the devil. In one verse, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning, does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. And whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. For he's a liar and the father of lies. Now, I just got to do this quickly. This is a great truth that needs to be recognized and understood in the church today and is completely whitewashed by so many. The devil has made a cute little, a cute little being that dances around with a, you know, a little tail and pitchfork, little horns, and that's not the devil. Verse 44 tells us who the devil is. You can read his origin story in, in Isaiah 14 or Ezekiel 28. Isaiah 14, 12 through 15 Ezekiel 28, 13 through 17. These are pictures in the Hebrew scriptures, origin stories of the devil, of Lucifer, of Satan. But it's interesting that here in verse 44, he says, you're of the, your father, the devil. He doesn't even call him Satan. He just calls him the devil. The devil, which is tau diabolos. Diabolos. I, I, I'm ashamed to admit this to you all, but, but the mascot of my high school, we were the Diablos. Yeah, really. <laughs> and I got out of there, you know, I did my time and got out of there as quick as I could. But the Diablos and, and our, our, what are the, the books at the end, the, the school books that they give you at the end? The yearbook, thank you. Our yearbook had a devil on the front of it. All four years, just different cute characteristics of the, oh, he's just a cute little devil, just a little devil. It's unbelievable. Every football game, somebody, a couple of guys usually would put on long red underwear and a devil mask and try to run across the football field and not get caught by the campus cops. That was, that was I mean, this was, oh, it's just so cute. It's just so funny. And Jesus says, here's who the devil is, Diabolos. Diabolos, by the way, means accuser. Satan means adversary. So the very name Satan is, he's in absolute rebellion to God, and he is the accuser, the devil. Every time you hear the word devil, that's what it means, accuser. He's the accuser. Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, the accuser of our brethren who accuses them before our God day and night. That's why we need an advocate. That's why 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 tells us Jesus Christ is our advocate. Don't want to get ahead of you there, Jake, but he's our advocate. We have an accuser, we have an advocate. And every time Satan accuses, every time he says, Lord, Deb's laughing at all the wrong jokes. <laughs> Jesus is like, no, she's not. She's laughing at Rick and his jokes are good. <laughs> we have an advocate who stands up and though the devil would accuse you, and by the way, that's what sin does. Note this, this is what sinners do with sin. Think about this. It's what the Pharisees had just done with the woman that morning. The Pharisees who Jesus called out were in sin themselves, but were accusing this woman of sin. That's what sinners do. How do you know, Rick? Because I'm a sinner. 
Because though I'm covered with the blood of Jesus and I am a righteous man in the eyes of God, I have lived in the world of sin and I have been a sinner like anybody else. Sinners treat sinners, get this, with accusation and condemnation. Isn't that exactly what we see all the time in our world? By people who have no right to judge. But that's what sin does. Because sin takes after its father, the devil, who's an accuser. And so the Pharisees accused the woman. But remember, always remember this. Though one person who already is struggling with evil in their life goes after another person for evil in their life, there is a devilish driver on this bandwagon. It said that the devil is in the details. So here are the details. Number one, the devil is a killer. The devil is a killer. The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. That's it. I come that they may have life and have it abundantly, Jesus said. But all the thief does, all he wants is to steal, kill, and destroy. The devil is a killer. Jesus said he was a murderer from the beginning because of Cain and Abel, right? No, no, before that. He was a murderer before that? Yeah, because it was by his deceit that death entered the world. He's a murderer. Ezekiel 28, 16 of the devil says, you were internally filled with violence and you sinned. Therefore, I cast you as profane from the mount of God and I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, because he was once a cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire, I've cast you out. Because he's filled with violence. That's the devil. He's a murderer. He's a killer. Uh, the devil is also a liar. He's a liar. He's not going to tell you the truth. He's going to say whatever he has to say to get you to think that what you're around Sunday morning, he's going to make her understand you in a way that your wife never could. Oh, she just gets me. No, she doesn't. He's going to make him look to you like, that's the man I wish that I had married. No, he's not. It's the devil lying to you because that's what he does. 1 Peter 5, 8, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to pet them and give them a little food and maybe a ball to play with. <laughs> He's seeking to devour. That's what he wants to do. Steal, kill, destroy, devour. The devil is a liar and a killer. He's been a deceiver from beginning to end. By the way, all the way to the end. Revelation 20, verse 10, the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever. The devil who deceived them, deceived who? Deceived people at the very end of the millennial kingdom. He's still at it. From beginning to end, he's a killer. He's a liar. And all this adds up to one big, undeniable Jesus truth I've said it to you before, but I got to say it again because this is whitewashed in the church far too much today. He's a killer, he's a liar, and the devil is a person. He is not a personification. He's a person. He is real. He is a being. He is in evil opposite to God. He's a bad guy who's really a bad guy. And I call this a Jesus truth because Jesus himself speaks of the devil as an actual being, as he does right here, verse 44. He also speaks directly to the devil in the temptations. 
he deals with the devil at different points in his ministry because the devil is actual and the devil has demons and these are spiritual beings of real power, not almighty power, but mighty power nonetheless. Actual, true beings, a killer, a liar, a person. Why sidetrack into all these devilish details? Well, because 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11 says, so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. If we whitewash the devil and we say he's just a picture of evil, then we deceive ourselves as to the work he's trying to do in our lives. We misunderstand we have an adversary and an accuser. Well, so what, am I supposed to fight against him? No, I would suggest what you do is follow the lead of Michael the archangel and just simply say, the Lord rebuke you. You read about that in Jude. Michael the archangel, rather than throwing a railing rebuke against the devil, just said, the Lord rebuke you. Michael the archangel in all of his power and, and glory, and, and he's an amazing angel in the Bible, and he stands behind his father. I'm not going to fight him. You fun real. And by the way, this is why on Sunday morning we had to talk about adultery. I didn't want to. I don't like doing teachings like that because for me, if it causes pain, if it scratches wounds, I don't like to do that. But we had to deal with the wounds of adultery because it's just another lie that the devil fathers, that it's okay or that we can kind of sweep it under the rug or we can just kind of look the other way. Truth is, unless we walk in the light who is the truth, all we're going to know is condemnation. Do you realize that's what the, what the flesh does? Now get this. What the flesh does is say, I don't want anybody to know about my sin because then I'll be condemned. So we hold it close to the vest. And you know what's happening while you're holding it close to the vest? You're being condemned. You're walking around in condemnation. I don't want anybody to know. And so we hold on to these, these secrets or these things going on in our lives and, and we feel the guilt and we feel the shame and we feel the condemnation. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Let me shine my great light on that so we can see it and clear it out. And set you free. Because the truth will set you free. Meanwhile, the devil's on the side just going, no, 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 you don't want anybody to know about that. They'll just condemn you. Jesus Christ will not condemn you. He will release you. He will set you free. That's what he does. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But man, the devil, six months later, he clarifies, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. You've got to come to the light of life. Confess it. Let it go. And I've told you all this before as well. Been in ministry long enough, I've heard it all. Now, there are people that will sit down with me and they'll say, Rick, I, I, wanna, I have to confess something, but this is bad. This is going to shock you. And I'm like, mm-mm, you can't shock me. Not that, I, it, it, not that it matters what I think, but you can't. I've heard it. I've heard it. Let's get it out. Let's get it into the light. Let's let Jesus bring forgiveness and redemption and healing and get you reconciled to God, the only way that can happen is when we walk in the light as he is in the light. Which brings me to part four, final part here, God, God. Verse 49, 
Jesus answered, this is when they just throw out, you're a Samaritan, you have a demon. And he answered, I do not have a demon, but, my, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. I do not seek my glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will not see death. That's just awesome. Surely you are not greater than our father Abraham who died. The prophets died too. Who do you make yourself out to be? So right back to spiritual smackdown. of, And the prophets are dead. Are you, are you greater than them? Mm-hmm. They all died. Jesus is speaking on a spiritual level that is so much higher than this. Oh, oh. What, so he's not talking about physical death there when he says, the one who keeps my word, he will never see death? Oh, he is talking about physical death. If you keep his word, there are some who have never seen death. Physically? I mean, you know this, right? There are some keepers of his word who averted physical death. Enoch, Genesis 5, 24, walked with God and he was not for God took him, never saw death. Hebrews eleven five. 5, by faith Enoch was taken up so he would not see death. He's taken up because God took him up and he obtained the witness that before being taken up, he was pleasing to God. How is he pleasing to God? He believed. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. Well, Enoch had faith. God loved Enoch, loved his faith, said, hey, let's just go home. And off he went. He never tasted death. Elijah, 2 Kings 2, 11, went up by a whirlwind to heaven. So yes, there are people who are keepers of the word of God who have never tasted physical death. There are some here who may not. I know, we all hope it's all of us. We're all waiting to hear his voice call. And we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so he shall always be. We figured it out or because we've done all the right things, but because we have been made righteous by Jesus and we just happen to be the ones who are alive at the time of the rapture of the church and we will not taste death, just like Enoch, just like Elijah. We're going to go up, chariots optional. But physical death aside, honestly, Carson calls this a matter of relatively small import. Physical death. Jesus, you know, yeah, yeah, he, that, that's legitimate that those who keep his word would not taste death, but he's speaking greater than that. He is talking about the second death. Those who are keepers of my word will not taste spiritual death. And he is saying that his word far surpasses those of Abraham or the prophets, all of whom tasted the first death, but by faith in God will not taste the second death because they kept his word. Jesus also never takes the bait of self-promotion. Who are you? Who do you say you are? He won't take the bait of self-promotion, but he does acknowledge the Father's promotion. In fact, over in the book of Hebrews chapter 5, verse 4, says, no one takes the honor to himself, but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but he who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Just as he says also in another passage, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Okay, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say 
He is our God. But you have not come to know him, but I know him. If I say that I do not know him, I'll be a liar like you, but I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. I love that. That is nothing short of divine. Abraham saw my day. And the only way Abraham could have seen Jesus' day was for him to see Jesus in the full daylight of revelation. He had to see God. He saw Jesus as God. He saw God in the flesh. Jesus Christ is God in the flesh, right? He is the Word made flesh. Now, Abraham saw him. You could say Abraham rejoiced in light of Jesus. He rejoiced in light of Jesus. Okay, well, when did Abraham see Jesus? At least, at least in Genesis 14. Perhaps at other times as well. Because there are times in Genesis where we're told that Abraham saw the Lord. And we know that no man can see God and live, but we're told Abraham saw the Lord. In fact, we're told in Genesis 15 that he saw the word of God. How do you see the word of God? Well, the word would become flesh and dwell among us, right? So the word is Jesus. But in Genesis 14, well, here, here's the Hebrew pastor's commentary. Real quickly, Hebrews 7. In, in Genesis 14, Abraham's coming back from war, and he runs into this very interesting, strange, mysterious king named Melchizedek. And the Hebrew pastor explains, this Melchizedek, king of Salem, Jerusalem, was priest of the Most High God, El Elyon, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom Abraham also apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils. That is, Abraham tithed to Melchizedek an act of worship to this Melchizedek. He was, first of all, by translation of his name, Melchizedek, king of righteousness. And then also he's the king of Salem, which means king of peace. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. And Genesis 14 tells us with that picture as this Melchizedek comes out to Abraham and Abraham offers him a tithe and Melchizedek brings out the first mention of this in the Bible, bread and wine. The symbols of communion, of the body and blood of Jesus. And Jesus says, Abraham saw me. He saw my Eve, what they've just heard him say. You can almost hear him sputtering and stuttering. So the Jews said to him, verse 57, you're not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? By the way, side note, real quick. You're not yet 50 years old. Why didn't they say you're, you're just 30? I wouldn't say to Jake, dude, you're not quite 50 yet. Because he doesn't look like he's quite 50 yet. And some think, and it's possible, when they say you're not yet 50 years old, they didn't know how old Jesus was, but he looked older than he was. Why? Because he was a man of sorrows. Because he bore on his shoulders the weight of the world. 
Look at an American president. All it takes is four years in office, and they age tremendously. Jesus has been two and a half years now on the ministry trail. And so it's possible that they said you're not yet 50 years old because when they looked at him, they thought maybe he's close to 50 rather than being 32, 33. It's possible. But you're not even 50, and you've seen Abraham, who existed 2,000 years earlier. And Jesus says, verse 58, Underline it, highlight it, circle it, put little stars around it. Truly, truly, I say to you, and before Abraham was born, I am. And he ends the sentence there, period, underlined, all caps. Before Abraham was born, I am. Ego a me. And it's the same thing he said back in verse 24, unless you believe that I am. Before Abraham came into being, before he even existed, not even, it's not when he was born, it's before he came into being, it's before he was even conceived, before he existed, I existed. I am, Jesus says. You could say, Jesus says, he not only rejoiced to see my day, I pre-existed his days. And it is the most boldly blatant declaration of deity by Jesus in the Bible. John chapter 8, verse 58. Note that, there is no getting around this one before Abraham was born, I am. It's not bad English, it is truth. I am. Can you say that? Oh, not I am, but can you say that Jesus is God? Do you know that? Because I've, I've, I've actually asked that question of, of some believers, of some Christians. You believe in Jesus? Yes, I do. Do you believe that Jesus is God? And there's like a pause there. Before Abraham was born, I am. I'm not sure, again, how it gets any clearer than that. Jesus claimed to be God, and his enemies knew it. Verse 59, therefore they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Now listen, we'll end here. He hid himself. Literally translated, Jesus was hidden from them. That's what happens to those who reject the light of the world. Jesus is hidden from them. That's what happens to those who reject the truth. Jesus is hidden from them. It's what happens to those who follow the devil as a father. Jesus is hidden from them. It's what happens to those who reject him as God. Jesus is hidden from them. 2 Corinthians 3.15, but to this day whenever, is Moses, whenever Moses is read, the Hebrew scriptures, a veil lies over their heart, but whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away and you can see Jesus. He is no longer hidden to you when you turn to the Lord. Who do you see? in light of Jesus tonight. Father, I see Jesus. I get so thrilled in this chapter. This is one, Lord, I just, I, I could teach over and over and over because it is so thrilling. Lord Jesus, to hear your declaration of I am. Three times, ironically, three times in this chapter you say I am. Three times. I am, I am, I am. And Lord Jesus, here tonight, and I invite you to do this in your heart. If you agree with me, we declare that you are God. Jesus Christ, our Savior and our God. 
and we put our faith in you. We want to walk in the light of life. We want to receive, Lord Jesus, the truth. And we pray that you will help us to then walk in that great reality, that awesome truth. Lord, that we will be filled with faith. And Lord, I do pray that we will be among those who will not see death. We're just keepers of your word. Father, bless us with such faith tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.